Trust your Bibles are prepared. We're in the book of Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1 for the preaching of God's word. And I'll be reading verse 1 and verse 2, even though we'll be looking at other passages in this final book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1 and verse number 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for the love that you showed to us. Thank you for the mercy and the grace extended. We are so undeserving, yet you, in your mercy and grace, choose, chose to lavish us with your amazing love. Lord, we are thankful for all the needs you've met, prayers you've answered. And today we are once again grateful for the opportunity that we have to hear from your word. Thank you for the time spent in your house thus far and how you've encouraged our hearts through the worship. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would speak to each heart in a very special way. May you cleanse me of sin, empty me of self, fill me with the precious Holy Spirit. Lord, and I pray that each and every heart would be receptive. Pray that you would remove any distraction, any hindrances. Lord, I pray that Satan would be defeated for here today. And through everything that's said and done, that you will receive all the honor, glory, and praise. For you alone are worthy of it. Take full control. Save some lost soul. Stir the heart of every believer. And we'll thank you again for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. Several years ago, as I started my, at the time, career in information technology, I began this brand new job, and I was like several other new employees required to go through a number of weeks of training and orientation to get acquainted with the company and the new job. And at the end of the training period, we were required to give constructive criticism and feedback to our peers by way of an evaluation form. And this feedback would be our personal positive or negative impressions of each other in various areas as we trained together. Well, when I got the feedback pertaining to me, I noticed that I had gotten very positive comments in a variety of different areas, except for one thing. And this negative comment related to my clothing, my dressing. And the comment stated that at various times during the training that I had worn shirts that were not appropriate for the workplace. I had worn 
some shirts that we would call Hawaiian prints. And the person giving the feedback was being honest, as we were encouraged to do, and said, simply put, that they were not appropriate for the job site. At first, I was somewhat taken aback. But as I considered further, I realized the truth in what was said. And what was eye-opening to me was that that realization had never for one second occurred to me until I was told. I had never thought about it. I had never thought that, let me choose this, uh, this shirt, and uh, I know it's inappropriate, but I'm going to wear it anyway. It never occurred to me until I received that evaluation form. I was ultimately happy that someone had chosen to be honest and to help me be aware of something that previously I was completely unaware of at the time. Just in case you might be wondering, I wasn't married as yet. Had I been, I would have never found myself in such a situation. But I share this experience because sometimes in life, there are times when we are not headed in the right direction. Sometimes we are not making the best of decisions. And during these times, we are doing so in ignorance, unaware of the fact that the reality is we're not doing the right thing. And I want to say this morning that there is really not a whole lot of shame in that. But what is so vitally important is that when we are advised, that when we are willing to receive the instruction, when we are willing to take the correction well with the right attitude, even if it stings our ego, if we make a change, it will be for our benefit. In the book of Malachi, God is speaking to the nation of Israel through the prophet by the same name. Malachi was the, the last prophet that God would send to them. And based on the message from God in this book, it is obvious that God's people, their hearts had gotten cold. They had gotten hard. They had gotten to the point where they simply could not be told anything. And what they were told, sadly, did not result in a change. And as I read this short book, something popped out to me. And I want to share it with you this morning. I, I observed a recurring response from God's people as God continually pointed out to them things that needed changing. I noticed from the response that it revealed that God's people, his chosen nation of Israel, did not want to receive correction and instruction. In the verses that we read, just two verses, this constant refrain is seen. Look at verse number two. God says to them, I have loved you, said the Lord. But look at what their response is. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou? 
In other words, they were saying to God, what did I do? Or colloquially, what me do? This question, while grammatically is a question, is also a statement that was saying to the sovereign God, God, I didn't do anything. And I didn't do anything wrong. And my friend, this is a very dangerous attitude to have, especially when God is the one pointing out the shortcoming. Let me say this to each and every one of us, and I'm preaching to myself as well. Never be someone who consistently hears preaching and find yourself in a situation where nothing applies to you. Nothing requires changing. Nothing requires correcting. These people, God's chosen people, notice they were still involved in religious activity. They were still going to the temple. They were still going to the places of worship. They were still engaged in religious routine. My friend, make no mistake about it. Uh, it's very easy to get stuck into religious routine and feel like we fulfilled our spiritual quota. And as a result, we are good. But the question is, did you hear from God? Did it make a difference? Have you gotten content with where you are? Are any changes evident in your life? Are you finding yourself stagnant? With years and years of no change. No response to God's word. I want to preach a message this morning that I've entitled, When I See Nothing Wrong With Myself. When I see nothing wrong with myself. Let me qualify that by also saying. It's not that oftentimes we don't see anything wrong with ourselves. But we also just don't see anything wrong with ourselves enough to make a change. Which says it is fine just the way it is. I don't want you to notice in this book that God continually pointed out things that needed changing, things that were of concern, and their response was continually the same response. Notice, first of all, in verse number two that we read, God's people, God's chosen people, doubted God's character. God said to them, I have loved you, said the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? God was responding to them and God said to them, listen, I selected you. Now, imagine they are responding, questioning God about his statement. And God chooses to defend what he just said. God says to them, you were selected as my people. God says to them, I chose you and I made you a people. Look at verse number two, it's three rather. He says, I, and I hated Esau. I, I loved Jacob. I loved Israel. And I hated Esau and laid his mountain and his heritage ways for the dragons of the wilderness. God was saying to them, this was no accident that I chose you. 
When God chooses you, you are special. When God chooses you, it, it shows that, listen, he loves you. When that young man or older man drops to one knee and pops out that ring, proposing to give that to that special lady, that action is seen as one of love. Because he's saying to that lady, of all the ladies in the entire world, I choose you. You are the one for me. That gesture, that action is received by that lady as one of love. God was saying to his people, I selected you. You are a select people. And as a result of being specially chosen by me, I have lavished you with special privileges. The subsequent verses in this chapter, verses 3 and 4 and 5, God was saying to them and showing them the contrast between the privileges that they had as a result of being his chosen people. He says in verse number 3, I laid his mountain, speaking of Esau, and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. But look at the contrast in verse number 5. But your eyes shall see and say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. God was saying to them, uh, how can you even question my character? How can you question my love for you? Look at the clear and distinct difference as a result of being my people as opposed to not. Do we often question God's love? Do we ever doubt that God is a good God? The prodigal son in that parable found out and appreciated what he had in his father's house after he left and went out into the world. And my friend, what often happens is that just like the prodigal son, we don't realize how good we have it until it is gone. And it happens over and over. There are people who grew up in churches and they're experiencing the blessings, the privileges of being in the house of God around the things of God, not recognizing that being in such a place, God has a hedge of protection around you. But then begin to feel like this is too restrictive. Too many constraints. Too many things I can't do that I want to do. And then when life turns upside down because the world will do that, when you leave this hedge, people begin to realize I had it better when I was in the house of the Lord. The children of Israel, they doubted God's character. But notice Another instance of their response 
in verse number six, they despised God's credibility. Now imagine this. God says to them, a son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If I then be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Said the Lord of hosts unto you, O priest that despise my name. Now God says to them, you despise my name. You despise my credibility. And look at their response. Wherein have we despised thy name? God was saying to them, when, when it comes to my authority as father and master, it is treated with disregard. I'm your father, but what you say, what I say doesn't matter. I'm in a position of authority, uh, but it means nothing to you. It's no wonder that Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? God was saying to them, a great indictment, you disregard what I say, and then that leads to disrespect. I'm your master, but you dishonor me with your attitudes and your actions. How often do we see blatant disregard and disrespect for the things of God? It is so common. When it's drawn to individuals' attention, the response is, man, you're making a big deal over nothing. You have people who use God's name as a prefix to their curse words. I want to convince you that that's just how this generation communicates. Get over it. That's disrespect for God. That's despising his very name. It is so common to see the disrespect for authorities that God has established in the home, in the church, in the country. Uh, and people want you to rationalize it by saying, man, I was upset. Hence, I responded such. Being upset has become a common justification for disrespect. But God says, you have despised my name, and to make it worse, you refuse to acknowledge it. Look in verse number seven. I want you to notice the third response of these people. God's chosen people. They, 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 they doubted God's character. They despised God's credibility. But notice how they dishonored God's communion table. Verse number seven, he says, Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that he say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. I mean, God couldn't catch a break with them. Everything God said, they said, What are you talking about? They dishonored God's communion table. They preferred what was sinful. They offered polluted bread. They had it in their possession. Now, I found this quite instructive. 
I mean, what's the first thing that we do with bread if we realize that it's getting moldy? When we realize that it's turning to a, a color that doesn't make it appealing any longer to eat. The first thing we do is to throw it in the trash. But not these folks. I mean, here it is. They, for some reason, kept what was despicable. Kept what they did not want to eat for themselves and chose to use that to offer it to a holy God. Wow. They preferred what was sinful. And how often do we find, even in service to God, listen, people seem to prefer to do what is sinful. Sin just seems sweeter. It's easier. Having the option to choose between what's good and what's evil, how often do we find evil is chosen? Having the option to do what is good and bad, bad is chosen. People choose hatred over love. Revenge over forgiveness. Meanness over kindness. Unfaithfulness over faithfulness. Ungodliness over godliness. These people preferred what was sinful, and because they preferred what was sinful, they polluted what was sacred. They brought this polluted bread and gave it to God. You know what they were doing? They were living in rebellion. Blatant rebellion. My friend, rebellion is an attitude to God that says, God, even though you have pointed out to me what you've pointed out, it means nothing. How often do we pollute God's table? Participating in Blatant and open sin. And brings oneself to God's table with no desire to make it right. That's saying to God, God, I'm going to offer you polluted bread. And you better take it because that's what I'm bringing. God says, in doing so, you dishonor my table. And when God pointed it out... They still refuted. What a response. It gets worse. Look at chapter 2. Notice the fourth thing. Keep in mind as we chronicle these responses, these are not the so-called heathen people. These are God's people who are still engaged in religious and so-called spiritual activity. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 17. The Bible says, this is God speaking, he has he have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? 
When he say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighted in them, or where is the God of judgment? These people, God's people, uh, they chose to doubt God's character. They despised God's credibility. They dishonored God's communion table. But they discredited God's commands. Here you have the people who should be the representatives of God. They encouraged wicked actions. God says, I'm tired of your words because when people do evil, you call it good. Isn't that where we are as people in this world today? People encourage wicked actions. People encourage hatred. They encourage envy. They encourage strife. They rejoice in others' downfall. My friend, that is encouraging wickedness. And here's something else we ought to be mindful of. In order not to encourage wicked actions, you have to discourage it. Your friend says to you, Man, you heard about what happened to so and so? Man, I am so happy. Good for them. They did something to me some time ago, and guess what? Karma. I am so glad, and I celebrate in their goodness, in, the, in what happened to them, rather. And here it is. Maybe you don't have a liking for the person either. But you don't want to say anything to correct them. You just say, well, if that's how you feel, you know what we ought to do? Discourage sinful practices in order to discourage wickedness. When we see wrong, and it is said directly to us specifically, especially speak up about it. They discredited God's commands. Here it was, what was evil, they were calling it good. And as a result, they were encouraging wicked actions. And by encouraging wicked actions, they were also encouraging, notice this, worldly attitudes. I mean, it's amazing that these would be the representatives of God himself. Look at what they said in the latter part of verse number 17. It says, where is the God of judgment? Worldly attitude, my friends, comes about because people act as if God doesn't exist or if the Bible is relevant, irrelevant or outdated. They were saying, where is God? He doesn't matter. That's the attitude of the world. You hear common refrains these days. Who needs to get married anymore in order to have sex? Totally unnecessary. Who says marriage needs to be between a man and a woman? Man, that's all time stuff. Who says that the husband is the head of the home? It's outdated. Man disregards the word of God. 
disregards what God says. And that's man exerting himself and exalting himself above the sovereign God. In other words, man is saying to God, God, what you said does not matter. God is saying in response, I am tired of your words. And here's something that we ought to be mindful of. Think of our own response. When you get tired of someone's words, what do you do? You tune them out. You turn them off. Or as a phrase that I've heard these days, you put them on ignore. My friend, when it comes to Almighty God, that's not a good place to be. That God is weary of our words. Because we've discredited God's commands. Notice the fifth thing here. I want you to notice in chapter 3 and verse 7. It's amazing to me that God's people had the, the same refrain. Whatever God said, it was dismissed. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 7. Notice after God outlines uh, this litany of, of issues that he had with his own people, they still succeeded and intended to dismiss God's call. Look at verse number 7. God says, look at verse number 6 just for continuity. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. God is demonstrating to them, I've been merciful to you, even though you've rejected and rebelled against me. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you, said the Lord of hosts. But he said, wherein shall we return? Wow. After all that they've done, God summarizes it in verse number 7 of chapter 3. God is still concerned about a relationship with his people. The ones who've turned their backs on him. And so God calls out to his people. He calls out to those who he loves. And God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is still concerned about having a relationship with sinful man. What a God. What a God of mercy and grace. He's concerned about relationship and as a result, he makes a call to repentance. He says, return unto me and I will return unto you. It's a call to make a 180 degree turn. And here's the thing about God. He's not calling for people to fix themselves. He's calling for them to come unto him, to turn unto him. Uh, James chapter 4 and verse 8 says, draw nigh to God and he will what? Draw nigh to you. God is simply saying, change your mind about your sin. 
Turn to me. Seek me. Desire me. Have a hunger for holiness and righteousness. It's a call to repentance. But notice the callous response. Here they go again. Wherein shall we return? In other words, why should we return? What for? How often does God speak to his people? And I'm talking about saved people. Born again believers. And he says to the preaching time and time again, come back to where you used to be. I mean, you used to be active in the work of God. You used to be teaching a Sunday school class. You used to be involved in ministry. You used to be excited about the things of God. Come back. For whatever reason you no longer do, God is calling you back. Are you content with perpetually giving God the cold shoulder? My friend, no matter how long you've been saved, God has not changed his expectations as it relates to service an active service to him. Can you imagine, do we often think that in rejecting and rebelling the call of Almighty God, in whatever area he's speaking to us about, do we ever take time to stop and think that in rebuffing God, in rejecting God, in telling God, I'm not ready yet. God, or I'm dismissing what he said. Do we think about the fact that we are breathing his ear? God's people dismissed his call. You think the list of rejection towards God was over? Look at verse number eight. They dismissed God's call and then they discarded God-ordained commitments. Verse number eight says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed I mean, you talk about a people who just could not see anything wrong with anything they did. God responds in tithes and offerings. God accuses them justly of robbing him. They had robbed the sovereign. My friend, this word rob, when you rob someone, it is to take from them something that belongs to them. God says, you've made a decision to rob me, to withhold from me what belongs to me. And God speaks here specifically to tithing and giving of offerings. Now, tithing is giving God, make no mistake about it, what belongs to him. That tithe 
it is not yours. God is saying it is mine. So when you hold on to it, you have robbed me. They had robbed the sovereign and they had also refused to sacrifice. Now, offerings are given above tithes. But here's something that I found interesting as I read this. God said, you you have robbed me in tithes and offerings. So while it is that the tithe belongs to God, God says, you've also robbed me in offerings. And you know what that said to me? God still owns everything. Everything that we have belongs to God. God has made us stewards, managers of what he has entrusted into our care. My friend, oftentimes, sadly, we act as if we own something, forgetting the fact that God is the originator of all things that we have and enjoy. God said, you robbed me. And even though they had robbed God, they still questioned the validity of what God said. What a sad indictment that man would have the audacity to disagree with God. You think that their responses of rejection towards God over? No. Look at verse number 13 of chapter 3. They disputed God's conclusion. Verse number 13, God says to them, Your words have been stout against me, said the Lord. In other words, no matter what I say, you have a response that is adamant in your sinfulness. You have not been shy about what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. What you're going to reject. Despite what I say. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against? Verse number 14, he have said, it is vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? What they were saying to God, God, serving you makes no sense. You ever heard people who would have served God for whatever reason? This God thing. Makes no sense. As a matter of fact, I doubt whether there is a God. That's what you find people saying. Look at verse number 15. And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. In other words, men, men, the people who do wickedness, the people who do evil, men, they are doing better than if they were serving God. I think I want to join with them. Yea, 
they that tempt God even are delivered. Man, the more wickedness you do, man, the more prosperous you are. And you expect me to serve God? They disputed God's conclusion. But let me say two things in closing. God took the time to outline several issues with his people. And a holy God, a sovereign God, a God who is still on the throne, has still chosen to give the very same people a distinct choice. This God, the maker of the universe, who of all things has chosen to give his creation the ability to either to choose or to reject him. Even though what God points out to us is undisputable, indisputable, and without error, God has still chosen to give us the ability to make a choice. But make no mistake about it. Your choice will not change the fact that God will always be right. But the choice is yours nonetheless. It is our choice. But here's the second thing I want and final thing I want us to understand. That while God has given every person the ability to make a clear and distinct choice, the one thing that is certain Whatever choice you and I make, it will have definite consequences. And these consequences are directly linked to the choices that are made. Chapter 4, in closing, points this out. God juxtaposes two clear consequences that are either negative or positive. This is not complicated. It's not calculus as they say. It's not rocket science. It is linked directly to the choices that are made based on what God has taken the time to point out clearly. By the way, calculus is not that hard, all right? But chapter 4 and verse number 1, look at what the Bible says. This is the negative side of the consequences. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave neither root nor branch. God says the consequences of rejection and rebellion and wickedness that I've pointed out very clearly, the consequences of making a choice to reject what I've said, listen, they will not be even root or branch. It will all be evaporated into nothingness. But look at verse number two. A clear contrast. But unto you that fear 
my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And he shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And he shall tread down the wicked, for there shall be ashes under your soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. God says the consequences are clear. And I say to each and every one of us here in closing, what is your response to the word of God? Let's not get caught up in our rituals and our routines. We're in a place where we are under the sound of the word. Line upon line, precept upon precept. And this final book in the Old Testament culminates a period where God appealed to his people for decades, if not centuries. And after God was done speaking with them through the prophet Malachi, there was what was, is known as the silent years. God says, okay, I shut it down. I have nothing else to say for an extended period of time. Notice what the final word in the Old Testament is. The final two words occurs. My friend, if we ever get to the point where God says, I've had enough, I've said enough, we would not be a people who could be called blessed. And it's all linked to whether or not we are willing to agree with God. And not just agree, but willing to make a change based on what God has said. God says to his people, I have a number of issues, concerns, but God's people, sadly, based on the continual response, saw nothing wrong with themselves that warranted making a 180-degree turn. It had become just water off a dog's back. May Shiloh Baptist Church, this place, be a place where we are serious about doing business with God. That what God says matters. And I can assure you on the authority of God's word that when what God says matters to us, 
we would be amazed at what God does among us and through us for His honor and for His glory.